Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, viruses exist as mutant clouds of closely related individuals. A new understanding of these swarms is helping researchers predict how viruses will evolve and where disease is likely to spread. And stick around or skip ahead to our second segment. The soil teems with billions of hidden microbes. Researchers have begun to catalog how these organisms are changing the world. First, How Mutant Viral Swarms Spread Disease by Carrie Arnold Sometime in late 2013, a mosquito-borne virus called chikungunya appeared for the first time in the Western Hemisphere. Chikungunya, or chick as it's called, rarely kills its human hosts, but it can cause fever, rash, and debilitating joint pain. In the two years since it first arrived in the Caribbean, chick has spread wildly across the Americas. It is now suspected of having infected over 1 million people in 44 countries and territories, creating a hemisphere-wide horde of mosquito-borne suffering. The same biological quirks that have contributed to chick success are showing researchers how to fight it, and other viruses like it. Chick is an RNA virus, just like influenza, West Nile virus, hepatitis, and Ebola, among others. Unlike DNA viruses, which contain two copies of their genetic information, RNA viruses are single-stranded. When they replicate, any errors in the single strand get passed on. As a result, copying is sloppy, and so each new generation of RNA viruses tend to have lots of errors. In only a few generations, a single virus can become a mutant swarm of closely related viruses. This viral genetic jumble has given Marco Venusi, a virologist at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, a way to predict the future evolution of RNA viruses like Chick. Venusi has recreated a single mutation in Chick that occurred early in the virus's around-the-world adventure, work that illuminated how the virus was able to spread so widely in such a short amount of time. Now, Venusi is trying to predict Chick's future. This past June, at the annual meeting of the American Society for Microbiology in New Orleans, Venusi showcased the two mutations in Chick that are most likely to develop next. But viruses are tricky and complex beasts. No one can predict exactly what they will do, but if researchers are ever to get a step ahead of the rapidly shifting world of viruses around us, they will need to deconstruct the viral swarm. For almost 40 years, scientists have worked to understand how RNA viruses can have so many mutations and still be so successful. In the late 1970s, the virologist Esteban Domingo of the Autonomous University of Madrid was trying to measure the sloppiness of replication using an RNA virus that infects bacteria. He found that one mutation occurred every time the virus copied its genome, on average. As a result, a single virus produces an array of daughter viruses that are almost but not quite identical. Every generation spawns another array of viruses— leading to what Domingo called a mutant cloud of viruses. However, most of the mutations in viral clouds create problems for the virus. Researchers assumed that any single mutated version of a healthy virus was likely destined for extinction. But then, in 2006, scientists published an account of a thriving dengue virus in Myanmar, with what should have been a catastrophic error in the middle of a vital gene. 
When a virus infects a cell, it begins to copy the cell's genome, incurring mutations as it does so. When daughter viruses assemble themselves in the cytoplasmic soup of genes and proteins, the overall virus that results is often a mashup of these mutated copies. And if one mutation creates a dud protein, as happened with dengue, the virus can survive because of other viruses in the swarm that have a good copy. Think of it as a potluck, Domingo said. The host asks people to bring many types of dishes. That way, if one person arrives late or burns a pie, a single missing item won't ruin the dinner. For a virus, a variety of options allows it to not only infect different hosts, as chicken dengue do with humans and mosquitoes, but also to infect different tissues within the same host. This cloud of mutations makes it easier for viruses to explore new tissues and new hosts, Domingo said. In 2005, Venuzzi was studying polio, another RNA virus, as a researcher in the lab of virologist Raul Andino at the University of California, San Francisco. Polio infections tend to start in the gut and move to the brain. Venuzzi wanted to study the role that viral diversity plays in the leap. He started by engineering a polio virus that copied its genome with fewer errors than usual. The virus could infect the brain just fine, as long as it was directly injected and didn't have to travel to get there. But without a swarm of diversity, the virus couldn't move from the gut to the brain. Next, Venusi and his colleagues used chemicals to induce mutations in this polio virus, enlarging the size of the mutant cloud. The polio traveled from the gut and into the brain, which it then affected quite well. The virus needed a large swarm in order to do its job. This was the first time we could control the number of mutations and see whether the mutant swarm was biologically relevant or just an accident, Venusi said. And we found that when you have a more restricted swarm, you can't adapt as well. On the flip side, too many mutants aren't good for a viral swarm either. Domingo and Venusi pointed out that the popular antiviral medication, rivavirin, pushes viruses to develop a swarm that is so big and so full of mutations that the resulting viral potluck is missing vital components. Viruses have to optimize the size of the swarm to have enough mutants that you can adapt to new conditions, but not making too many mistakes which would then kill your population, Venusi said. Viral variants also let viruses evolve and spread themselves to new species. In 2009, a rabies outbreak in gray foxes in Humboldt County, north of San Francisco, was traced back to skunk virus that had jumped to foxes. To see when this jump may have occurred, Monica Barucki, a virologist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, used advanced next-generation genetic sequencing to examine the viral swarms of rabies-infected animals going all the way back to 1995. This type of deep sequencing lets researchers search for minor variants in a virus that can acquire mutations and ultimately take over. And indeed, Baraki found genetic traces of the outbreak virus even in the earliest samples. The results, published in PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases in 2013, show that rare viral variants in an individual provide crucial reservoirs of genetic diversity that can help a virus jump species and evolve. It also offered some of the first clues that could help scientists begin to predict what might happen in the future if they could only deconstruct the viral swarm.
Half a world away from Baraki's California lab, Venuzzi had turned his attention to chikungunya, which had gained popular and scientific interest after an outbreak on Reunion, a French island off the east coast of Madagascar, sickened more than one-third of the population. Chikungunya is frequently found on the east coast of Africa, where it is transmitted by the Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. But Reunion had very few of those mosquitoes. Instead, the island had a closely related species known as the Asian tiger mosquito, or Aedes albopictus. Chick didn't typically fare very well in Asian tiger mosquitoes, but on Reunion, the virus seemed to be thriving. Researchers eventually realized that a single mutation in one of the proteins that coat the virus allowed Chick to pick the lock of the Asian tiger mosquito cells and enter much more easily. When researchers compared the original strain from Kenya to the Reunion one, they found that the Reunion strain was 40 to 100 times better suited to the Asian tiger mosquito, an amazing jump for just one mutation. Subsequent work revealed that similar mutations had happened at least three more times as the chick outbreak spread throughout countries along the Indian Ocean. Since this mutation was so simple and so advantageous, Venusi decided to see if it would happen again in the lab while he watched. If it did, it would provide some of the first evidence that researchers could watch a viral swarm as it adapted, and maybe even predict its future. He took the original chikungunya strain circulating in Kenya and infected a group of Asian tiger mosquitoes with it. Like polio, chick moves from one place to another in the body. It starts replicating in the mosquito's midgut before making its way to the salivary glands and then into the saliva, a process that takes around a week. On the seventh day of this process, Venusi and his postdoc, Kenneth Stapleford, dissected the mosquitoes, extracting virus from the midgut, salivary glands, and saliva, and sequencing the viruses found in each sample. In the midgut, they found many random mutations, but no single mutation appeared in more than one mosquito. The saliva, however, told a different story. The saliva in three of four mosquitoes contained the reunion mutant, in one of these, the reunion mutant made up 99% of the total virus population. We were able to create, within seven days, the emergence in the swarm of an epidemic strain that took at least several years to occur in nature, Benuzi said. But the virus didn't stop evolving in reunion. A continuing outbreak meant ongoing opportunities to evolve further. The first mutation had popped up so quickly in the lab that Venusi and Stapleford began to wonder if they could predict further changes to the virus. So, they repeated their experiments, but this time, they started by infecting the mosquitoes with the reunion strain. They let the virus percolate in the mosquitoes for 10 days to give it more time to acquire new mutations. Again, they sequenced the virus they found in the various mosquito tissues, and they identified two new mutants, both with mutations in the same lock-picking coat protein as the original reunion mutant, results they published last year in Cell Host and Microbe. Ongoing work, which Venusi presented at the microbiology meeting in June, has involved tracking how these mutations were selected in mice, a stand-in for chick-infected humans. The swarm concept is forcing some scientists to rethink some of the basic tenets of population genetics. Typically, the fitness of a virus is measured by how many copies of itself it can make compared to another virus, according to Andino. But, he said, that doesn't capture the full picture. Virologists like Andino and Domingo argue that the evolutionary fitness of a virus should include its ability to mutate. 
If an infection is a process of adaptation, a fitter virus is better able to adapt, Andino said. Furthermore, you can't measure the fitness of a single virus. Since individual virus variants can cooperate and interact, readily swapping proteins in their final product, the smallest unit evolution can select for is the swarm itself. Only by considering the whole mutant cloud of viruses can scientists hope to understand how they behave and what they might do in the future. If you look back at all the viruses in historical samples, you can see how it changed to get to where it is today, which you can also use to say, predict a new host, Barucki said. As Venusi continues to work on identifying Chick's next mutations, the inherent unpredictability of viral behavior has become clear. No one was surprised when Chick reached the Americas. What was unexpected was the viral strain that arrived. Everyone thought that it was going to be the reunion strain that reached the Americas, said Scott Weaver, a virologist at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Instead, it was an Asian strain of Chick that had been circulating at low levels for decades producing its own mutant swarms. The reunion strain continues to circulate, but with a million infected in the Americas and millions more at risk, the urgency to understand Chick has shifted to the Asian strain. Venusi and Stapleford have begun their mosquito experiments anew to try and predict what Chick might do in Central and South America, as the swarm continues its inexorable evolution. And now, a related story from Quanta's archives. Below Our Feet, A World of Hidden Life, by Elizabeth Svoboda. Janet Jansen first started to wonder about the vast universe of underground life as a student at New Mexico State University in the late 1970s. A handful of soil contains about 10 billion bacteria, but at the time, Earth scientists knew very little about what these microbes were and what they did. Later, as a young microbial ecologist at Stockholm University in Sweden, she started to catalog the microorganisms she collected during soil sampling trips, deciphering their genetic codes so that she could understand both their internal workings and how they fit into the underground habitat. As Jansen dug, though, she kept running into a problem. The main method then used to amplify and analyze stretches of DNA wasn't powerful enough to reveal all the workings of a single microorganism much less an entire community of them. You could get information about specific genes, but sequencing technologies were very slow, said Janssen, now a division director of biological sciences at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Richland, Washington. She knew the layers of sediment she studied held a treasure trove of biological finds, but she didn't yet have the tools she needed to unearth them. Then, soon after the turn of the century, new high-octane DNA sequencing methods made it possible to sequence thousands or even millions of genes almost instantly. These new, speedier methods meant researchers could easily sequence the collective genomes of the sample, known as a metagenome, for the first time. Suddenly, it was possible to scan the overall composition of habitats as diverse as stagnant bogs and frozen tundra, producing a detailed portrait of the microbial life they held. The gene and protein sequences from these wide-ranging scans, the first of their kind, would, once decoded, illuminate what the microbes were actually doing within each ecosystem. 
The data would help researchers understand how microbes capture and store carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, how they break down organic matter so that plants can access its nutrients, and how they neutralize soil toxins known to threaten human health. You can just sequence everything, Janssen said. That's where the metagenomic approach has really been an advantage. Almost everything about Janssen's current surroundings is big and bold. The 600 acres of sycamore-studded PNNL campus rolling across eastern Washington, the endless blue sky she can see through her picture window, the fridge-sized gene sequencing machine where her team deposits soil samples. But, as ever, what drives Janssen is the lure of the microscopic and the unseen, the challenge of mapping the contents of the soil microbiome, a teeming global community whose functions have never been fully understood. Soil, Janssen said, flashing a grin, is the ultimate complex system. Once metagenomics began opening up a whole new subsurface world to soil scientists, Janssen found herself faced with a fresh set of challenges. The scope of this emerging field she had helped to create was immense. A single teaspoon of soil may contain tens of thousands of species, and there are perhaps millions of species worldwide that have not yet been discovered. To tackle the staggering task of understanding their function, she formed a collaborative venture in 2010 called the Earth Microbiome Project, along with Rob Knight of the University of California, San Diego, and Jack Gilbert of Argon University Laboratory in Argon, Illinois. The project aims to catalog 200,000 microbe-rich samples from locations around the world. As of last year, it had analyzed more than 30,000 samples. But Janssen also knew that to really dig deep, she had to narrow the dizzying array of research possibilities before her to a handful that she could tackle within a lifetime. To begin, she and her team set out to study the prairie soils that dominate much of the American heartland. Thousands of soil microbes around the roots of grasses help the Midwestern Great Prairie to store more carbon than any other region in the continental United States. By producing proteins that slice and recombine carbon dioxide molecules, these microbes work in tandem with the grasses to capture atmospheric carbon dioxide and turn it into solid, carbon-rich biological matter that gets stored underground. That's a huge boon to humanity, because the more carbon dioxide a landscape can store, the less will be left as a greenhouse gas that drives planetary warming. But since over 90% of all soil bacteria can't be grown in the lab, researchers have long been unsure just how they contribute to carbon cycling. A metagenomic analysis of these prairie microbes, Janssen thought, would help reveal the extent of their involvement in carbon storage and illuminate whether rainfall and human land cultivation changed that role. Janssen's team fanned out across the central third of the country to see what microbial novelties they could find. At field sites in Iowa, Kansas, and Wisconsin, they took soil samples using tools called corers, foot-long hollow tubes designed to slice through the soil. When the core emerges, it pulls up a log-shaped sample with all its layers, and ideally its microorganisms, intact. The chunk of dirt is then preserved on dry ice and sent back to the lab. There, technicians sequence the sample's DNA and RNA. Once this process is complete, project scientists have a good idea which microbial genes are contained in each sample, and what biological jobs the microbes perform. If a soil sample contains bacterial genes that produce enzyme used to convert carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into solid carbon, and these genes are active, researchers can conclude that microbes within the sample are actively storing carbon. 
At each site, the research team sampled native, undisturbed prairie soil, as well as soil that had been farmed for many years. The sequenced samples revealed that the native prairie dirt contained a different mix of microbes from the farmed soil, which may, in part, be due to fertilizers that are used during farming. When we looked at these comparisons, there were strong microbial signatures, almost like a biomarker of cultivation, Janssen said. She suspects that there are differences in the way microbes store carbon in native and cultivated soil, a topic she plans to explore further in future research. Meanwhile, Janssen and her team were also exploring the soils of the Arctic, one of the world's fastest-changing climates. Janssen had long been curious about how these rapid temperature changes were affecting the underground microbial community, and whether these changes had any surprising side effects. There's so much organic carbon trapped in permafrost, she said, and we don't really know what's going to happen as the climate warms. At the outset of her work, Janssen suspected that warming trends might activate bacterial processes that break down stored carbon, releasing it into the atmosphere and fueling climate change. But since she didn't know for sure, she decided to study how the microbial community mix varied in three distinct types of Alaskan terrain. Frozen permafrost, surface soil that freezes and thaws as the seasons change, and relatively warm, waterlogged bog soil. As she suspected, Janssen found substantial differences among the microbial communities at these locations. Overall, there were few genes and proteins in the permafrost samples. But in the freezing and thawing soil layer, sequencing showed that bacteria within the soil samples were producing some intriguing proteins, including enzymes that snip long chains of carbon molecules, like cellulose from plants, into shorter, simpler sugar compounds that the bacteria can use as fuel. When this happens, previously locked-down carbon is released back into the atmosphere. When the soil thaws, Janssen said, it starts to transition more into decomposition. In warmer soils, in other words, bacterial carbon breakdown processes start to show up clearly in sequencing data. So just as some observers have feared, warming temperatures could release formerly inert carbon from the soil. This raises the worrying prospect of runaway carbon release as temperatures continue to rise. Most strikingly, the warmest soil samples in Janssen's study, the spongy bog soil, revealed an array of microbial genes and proteins involved in the production of methane, a greenhouse gas more than 20 times as potent as carbon dioxide. One such protein was methyl coenzyme M. reductase, which is involved in transforming carbon dioxide into methane. This find might imply that warming trends will drive local microbes to produce larger amounts of methane. Next, Janssen plans to investigate whether rapid thaws affect soil microbe populations differently from more gradual thaws, since both will likely become commonplace as the planet warms. Soil microbes are not just carbon processors, as the work of Janssen's colleagues reveals. Not only do the vast microbial communities underfoot affect air quality and global temperatures, they can also affect the taste and quality of the food we grow. Thomas Mitchell Olds of Duke University wanted to see if microbial populations in and around plants' roots could affect the way the plants matured. He and his student Maggie Wagner took soil samples from four different collecting sites in rural Idaho and isolated microbes from each sample. They then inoculated soil-filled pots with these four microbial samples and planted a common strain of mustard plant, Bochera stricta, in them. Certain types of microbes in the soil seem to speed plant flowering time, the team found, while others, such as members of the Proteobacteria phylum, slowed it down. 
The study underscored just how necessary microbial activity is to plant health and productivity. Soil microbes had already been linked to drought tolerance, growth rate, and other aspects of plant performance. Our experiment added flowering time to this list, Mitchell Old said. The potential for soil microbes to tweak flowering time, whether to improve yield, buffer against climate change, or both, is intriguing. Such a prospect might interest not just farmers looking to increase their bounty, but also, say, wine growers in California's Napa Valley, who know how dramatically bloom time can affect the development of grapes and the taste of the resulting vintage. The framed terroir of places like Napa, in fact, may arise from thousands of microbes humming along in unseen harmony. Other sequencing studies have illustrated the critical role soil microbes play in breaking down pollutants. When scientists at the University of Delhi in India took soil samples from a pesticide dump and compared them with samples from a cleaner control site, they reported that the soil from the waste site contained a higher concentration of gene sequences from certain bacterial groups, such as Pseudomonas, Novosphingobium, and Sphingomonas, that are known to degrade common pesticides like hexachlorocyclohexane. Microbes, it seems, can adapt to help fouled landscapes recover, which presents the exciting possibility of deploying the bugs in bioremediation efforts. Soils are a buffer against all kinds of insults to our ecosystem, said Vanessa Bailey, a microbiologist who works closely with Janssen at PNNL. The researchers working on the Great Prairie Project have managed to compile about 1.8 trillion bases of DNA data. But Janssen thinks those data describe only a fraction of the microbial communities in prairie soil, given that the soil contains between 1 billion and 10 billion individual cells per gram. We're still at the discovery phase, she said. We have a lot to do just to assemble a soil metagenome. She and other scientists are trying various techniques to streamline the gene analysis process, such as discarding less common gene sequences in a particular sample in order to focus on more prevalent ones. The more Janssen and her colleagues are able to learn more about previously unknown communities of microbes, the better they'll be to predict how these communities will react to different conditions, droughts, warmer weather or floods, just to kick off the list. They hope to build these predictions into computer models that would illustrate what microbial activity a given environmental change might create, as well as the expected results of that activity. Such models could help environmental planners cultivate microbial mixes that achieve a desired end, which could be soil that locks up gigatons of atmospheric carbon, or that sloughs up pollution with ease, or that yields the kind of grapes vintners dream about. By having knowledge of the microbes that are present in the best-case scenario, Janssen said, you can tweak the system to optimize that combination of microbes. But achieving the right microbial balance isn't always as simple as inoculating soil with certain strains of bacteria. If the conditions are favorable for the microbes you want to flourish, they will flourish, Janssen said. If you seed and the conditions aren't favorable, they'll just die. The ideal approach, then, will often be to engineer the kind of landscape that beneficial microbes naturally flock to. In warming areas that grow boggier every year, this might mean ensuring that there is enough oxygen-rich moving water, which would then make the area less hospitable to anaerobic microbes that belch large quantities of methane. In cultivated areas of the Great Prairie, farmers might choose fertilizers that preserve natural microbial diversity, yielding plentiful food crops and maximizing carbon capture from the atmosphere. Still, insights like these are gradual and hard-won. And Janssen knows future scientists will need to take up the cause of discovering all the ways soil microbes affect the rest of the planet. For now, 
Jansen relishes playing the role of soil surveyor, mapping the variety and breadth of microbial communities so others can someday benefit from the knowledge. We know more about the movement of celestial bodies, Leonardo da Vinci once mused, than about the soil underfoot. More than 500 years later, Jansen wants to be the scientist who finally proves him wrong. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast, with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.